we somehow uh, can't imagine that we live in a continuous loop, that we live in a closed universe, and that you can't get out of this universe. So that everything that dies recycles. And this particular level, but there are other levels where the same thing happens, much slower, much faster. When you begin to think, well, you know, trees move, but they move too slow for us to see them. We probably would move too fast for them to see us. All these speeds, all these frequencies intersect, interact, and whether or not they re realize the presence of each other uh, depends upon what they think they know or have experienced. Episode 87 with photographer and activist Chester Higgins, Jr. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. I'm just so excited. Today's conversation is with the legendary photographer, Chester Higgins Jr. Now, I've admired Chester's work for years. He is a master of his craft and a technician to the nth degree. But it's one thing to appreciate the work of an artist. It's another to have the ability to delve into their worldview. The work that we see simply being an artifact of a greater pursuit. Well, that's what today's conversation holds. What appears to be captured images is actually Chester's attempts at capturing God. Hailing from New Brockton, Alabama, and renowned for his extensive tenure as a staff photographer at the New York Times, spanning four decades, Chester's impactful body of work distinctly captures the life and culture of individuals from throughout the African diaspora. His photographs have graced the pages of Look, Life, Time, Newsweek, Fortune, Ebony, Essence, I mean, I, I could go on. Throughout his incredible career, he has published several titles like Black Woman, 1970, Feeling the Spirit, Searching the World for the People of Africa in 1994, and most recently, Sacred Nile, published in 2021. In today's episode, Chester reflects on the near-death childhood experience that opened his eyes to a parallel reality, introducing him to the spirit that shapes existence. He shares his insights on the interconnectedness of life, the continuous cycles of energy, and the pursuit of capturing the elusive spirit in his photographs. Now, we want to hear from you. Share some of your thoughts on today's episode with us over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. And you know, we're more than a podcast, so feel free to check us out over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. Oh, that's blackimagination.com. And if you're picking up what we're putting down, show some love and give a little double tap on the support link in the show notes. Join us as we explore the profound philosophy and artistic vision of Chester Higgins Jr. Ah, okay. 
Here we go with the one, the only, Chester Higgins. Mr. Higgins, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to the Institute of Black Imagination. I have been a fan for years, um, and it is <laughs> just you. a pleasure and an honor uh, to be in conversation with you today. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. It's a pleasure um, so to be here. To, oh, Ah, of no, course. just a pleasure to be here. Um, of course, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. <laughs> um, so, to start, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Well, I guess the father of African independence would be His Majesty Haile Selassie. To the memory of. Okay. Yeah, so let's call it in. Come on, Hallie, let's let's get into it. Um, I'm, I'm, fun- so I'm fundamentally begin, an African. I'm, oh. no, I'm just fundamentally an Africanist. Mm. Mm. Well, actually, I think that will actually be a really great place to start. Um, so you you have a quote that really struck me. Um, it's from it's from an interview that you did previously, and you say, "Behind everything is an energy, a spirit, an essence that gives its existence. Photography is a means to appreciate the many manifestations of my collective self." End quote. So those sentences say a lot. Thank you. Could you <laughs> unpack that a bit for us? <laughs> yes. The first part of it, I discovered at age nine when I had a near-death experience. And in that experience, uh, happened in the middle of the night, uh, I was awakened by this huge energy, this light on the wall. Uh, no sound, but it was something in my head. It wasn't going through the air. And this black man appeared in the middle of this white light in uh, a toga clothing. And as a nine-year-old, I didn't think anything was, I didn't know if it was real. I mean, I didn't know that's what happens in this reality. So it wasn't anything ominous about it. So I just sat up and I watched it. And then uh, it uh, opened its eyes and lowered hands and started to walk towards me. And then it said in my ear that I come for you. And at that point, you know, as a nine-year-old kid who only hear about religion when I'm forced to go to church three times on Sunday, I assumed that, I assumed that maybe this was Gabriel coming to take me to death. And I screamed. I screamed because I was pissed off, because I I resented at the age of nine to have to die, that I just got here. <laughs> Why do I have to die? And that resentment is what caused me to scream. And then my mother and father and grandparents rushed into the room. We have one of these chain link lights. You pull the chain down and the thing went away. And my mother was kneeling at my at the side of the bed, rubbing my hand, and I saw myself ascend. And I could tell that only because they started getting smaller. 
And as they start getting smaller, I begin to feel the energy of like another corridor, a parallel kind of thing, existence. And my mother, whatever she kept doing, it brought me back. And when they questioned me about what had happened, I told them what I just told you. So that encounter with the spirit taught me that there was something behind the curtain, that there is what we see is really a, a facade of a portion of it. And it all over time, um, when I went to Tuskegee, my first year was electrical engineering, which I flunked out because I didn't have calculus. But it also taught me between that and, and organic chemistry about how an epirotic, you know, table, how things exist completely as neighbors, but in totality in different frequencies. So the combination, those two things begin to meld in my just cognition and looking at life. So I begin to realize that what I was, you know, in life is, you know, we're all sort of living in our moments and our ego takes over. And it makes us think that this is an entertainment game and this is all there is. When in fact, it's very, very, uh, that's very little about what's going on. And, uh, but it also, what I'm talking about, goes into the era of what people would like to think is spookiness. Halloween is a perfect example, it's coming up. But, but we live in a, it, we somehow uh, can't imagine that we live in a continuous loop, that we live in a closed universe, and that you can't get out of this universe. So that everything that dies recycles. And this particular level, but there are other levels where the same thing happens, much slower, much faster. When you begin to think, well, you know, trees move, but they move too slow for us to see them. We probably would move too fast for them to see us. All these speeds, all these frequencies intersect, interact, and whether or not they re- realize the presence of each other uh, depends upon what they think they know or have experienced. And so I say that when I, so then it, became a part of my work, that I begin to try to use a camera as a means of when I do a journal. You know, I do a journal for two reasons. One, to offload. And two, to convince myself that today actually happened. The camera, my images, are part of those those journals. Because at an early age, I started trying to see if what I thought was real, the combination of those things actually existed. And so then I had to find out a way to use the the structure of the camera to do it. So my thing is that, okay, at age nine, I peeped that there's a reality behind the curtain that we consider reality. How do I show it? How do I find it? So I, for some reason, oh my God, for some reason, um, I came upon this idea that in order to peep that curtain that you had to look at when 
the moment made a turn. Each moment that we look at, imagine you're in a subway and you're going for several stations. That's a moment. And then the doors open. Boom. That's a reality. The doors close. It goes to the next station. Doors open. Boom. A new reality. Then the door closed. Life to me is sort of like that. So I look at the point when the, when the, uh, the moment is about to turn. And just as it's about to turn, I can see the spirit behind it. Because everything is really being, in, we all live at the pleasure of the spirit. Each moment is at the pleasure of the spirit. But the spirit is there if we are not afraid of seeking it out. So I accept the fact that what is obvious in front of me is uh, is real, but it's real in the context of what's pulling the strings. So I try to, so I have to accept what is obvious in front of me, but then I try to go a step further to see if I can capture what gives it is life. And what gives it is life is the spirit, is, is continuous life. Because we are, we are players on the stage, but we are carbon units that are dated. We are born to die. But the spirit continues to live, and they continue moves from one different carbon unit to another to all of them, just like the air. We can't see it, but it's there, and it affects us because if we can't breathe, we will die. So, my thing is is trying to appreciate that existence and find a way to um, capture a sense of it because I can't show it, but I can show the energy, the effect of it, so that when you look at a picture, hopefully if I'm if I'm successful, you look at a picture and you see something, but you also feel something that you cannot see. And that that you feel that you cannot see mm. is my effort to capture the spirit as it turns. <laughs> Work. <laughs> I, I, I had a question later about the type of poetry that exists in your images, but you just completely spelled it out. Um, so, you know, that actually goes into... So, first of all, for people who are listening, let me just quickly update you. Like, I know you all heard the intro, but we are in conversation with the master photographer, Chester Higgins. So this is all about image making, but also about what underlies uh, the intentionality of the image making. And so, you know, you speak about photography, uh, or at least your practice as a as an experiment or 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 an opportunity or a, a, a trying to catch the spirit, so to speak. Um, when do you know an image is successful for you? What, like once you see it, you know, in the developer tray or show up on your screen? Well, I call this thing capturing the signature of the spirit, and I know it because when it when it when it reaches its fruition, I I ride with the spirit when I'm working, so I follow the spirit, and the spirit is in charge. So, yes, my eyes may direct me to what is a visual subject, but the spirit is in charge in melding with that subject. Like, what I see is may attract me, but what I'm attracted to is what's behind what I see. I'm always attracted to the 
to the personality and of the spirit that's behind what is obvious. So I see a person, you know, and I look at the person and I take, I'm, and I'm living this reality, I can take all that in. But I'm also looking at what else is behind the person that the person has no idea that their life and their action is predicated upon. So that way I look, I, I get a, a total, a more of a totality of the life, the moment, the energy, the spirit. Because I just, in one level, I'm disassociating the person from themselves in order to join, to marry them with the spirit. The part of the, and that means ignoring the ego, because the ego in us wants us to collapse the person that we see as being all in all. So I have to eliminate ego, eliminate how I feel about it, have, make sure I have no judgment about it. I'm being a witness, a receptacle to whatever it is in its totality. And that's and it's, 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 it's not an issue of my editing the moment. It's an issue of my trying to absorb the whole moment. So whatever it is, is. I have no problems with that. Can I see it? Can I see it in its fullness is, is what is my concern. Hmm. And that, and you know, I want to, I want to, I want to go back to kind of these, you know, origins in Alabama, but, you know, staying here for just a quick second, for you, what is that lens shift, no pun intended, but like, what is that process of making more space beyond the visual in that moment of capture. The reason I ask is like, you know, I love this idea of making more space. I think a lot of times we don't realize there there's more space around us, more space around the stories in our head, more space around, you know, what we visually see, right? But I think sometimes because, you know, our brains are mostly visual cortex, right? Like we are geared towards vision, but we think that that vision, right, um, is the totality of being, but there's more space. And this is something that you discovered at a very young age, but as you move through the world, what is like, what is that mental shift? What is that lens shift? How do you make more space beyond what you see in any given moment? I say it's two things. It's acceptance and elimination of personal ego. Mm. And it's something that you... Oh, no, keep going. I have So, at nine years old, I was... The best... I, I, I hate to use this phrase, but at nine years old, that near-life experience gave me a gift. And that gift was to be able to see something else in the world that we don't normally think about or see. So that, um, and since then, I guess I've been affected by that. And part of that, uh, it works for me. The best way for me to block it is to have ego. To try to project myself onto say it. Say that one more time. Project it. If that spirit, if that energy, and that gift, to, for it to become blocked, mm -hmm. is for me to have ego and judgment. So Got I realize it. that those two things, those two things are the detriment to my being able to fully see and, and fully sensitive and fully become sensitive to. Um, 
it's not really about me. It's about, you know, I guess in a way I've, I've, give, I've been given a second life. Um, but in that second life, I peeped the, I peep something else, a parallel that, and that seriously, that even though we're born to die, somehow I know that death is not really the end. It's like a, a swivel door that's, just all you're doing is you're dropping one carbon thing and you're moving to something else. Whatever that form may be, it's still the, the spirit. We did not have the choice to decide that we were going to be born into this time, into this place. Like we can't now decide before we die that we're going to be born as something, something in another form, in another space. This spirit is in charge. So if one can embrace that, right away that removes your, your, um, the effect of your own personal actions on it, which is ego. And then it gives you distance to back up because yes, I watch from it. I watch from a distance. You know, one of the things I remember being taught by one of my class teachers uh, when I was a young kid was that you know, the three rules of twelves to in order to judge a person, size a person, uh, the first twelve feet away from you, how they break space, how they move from one space to another, tells you something about their sense of certainty the sense of strategy, all in their movement. We see this better when we look at things like Alvin Ailey or dancers who work on it. The next thing is the first 12 words out of their mouth because then that tells you how they structure their thought. And the last thing would be the first 12 inches that you can then smell them as an animal to animal. And it's a very, it's, I find it's, it's always been a very true sort of a measure. And it's not that that information is, is supposed to give me some advantage. No, it's just supposed to give me clarity. Mm. Mm. Um, I love that. I love the three rules of 12. I, my life will never be the same. Um, <laughs> but you know, let's, let's, let's circle back. Let's circle back to these days, uh, in Alabama, New Brockton, Alabama, to be precise. Um, so you were speaking about, you know, being, you know, nine years old, having this, I mean, really what you just explained was like your superhero origin story. Like that's like, you're an X-Man. That. Like that is literally. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay, literally okay. how it all begins. Um, but like what I also found very interesting is the way in which your family interpreted this experience, um, you know, really looked at it through the lens of faith. And then you became a youth minister after this. At nine years so old. So could you yes. tell us a little bit about like the home life and then also this kind of foray into like youth ministry, but like what is what is this environment in New Brockton, Alabama, small, small town? It's a, t a farming town of 800 people. 
I used to call it always a town until I started going to Africa, and I realized, you know, villages can have 800 people, so I tell people I'm from this little village in southeast Alabama called New Brockton, where the, farmer, <laughs> where the farmers farm cotton and peanuts. And my parents were professionals. My mother was a school teacher. My father and grandfather owned the business. And um, at the time when I had this apparition, my grandparents were living with us because my grandfather was a race man. He he really did he did everything he did was for the uplift of of, peop, of his people. He, in fact, uh, I later learned, uh, donated land uh, to build the first school in Coffee County for black kids to learn to go to school. Uh, and uh, donated, uh, and, and he was able to get a building that the white school board had, uh, had abandoned for, had built a new building for a white school in another part of the county. And he paid for uh, black uh, carpenters to go over and take that building apart plank by plank, nail by nail, window by window, and rebuild it on his property. And that became the school uh, that uh, I graduated from called the Warren Smith High School. And then as a race man, he would, uh, at voting time, he would, the farmers didn't have the money and, and the uh, for poll taxes, which the uh, Southern whites put in the way of your being able to vote. And he would pay the poll taxes, bring them into town, let them vote, take them back home. Well, one Sunday, he got repaid for that while he was away. The Klan burned his house down. That's why when this happened, he and his wife was living with us while they had a new house being constructed. And my grandfather, who pastored several churches, on the spot, Nobody can make any heads or tail of what this experience I had was all about. And he declared that it was a call to the ministry. Well, he, he had a point. I didn't realize it, but I wasn't interested in Scripture. But the next day, he put a Bible in my hand, and I started reading. And I so took the Scripture like a fish to water because of the stories and the, uh, the, the, the stories of morality, the stories of, about, it's all, you know, the Bible is really all about, uh, human actions, um, good or bad. Um, it's about what we do in this, what humans do in this life, this period. So I became really attached to that. And when I went to Tuskegee, I became really attached to psychology because of that and sociology, human behavior, became a, a big, big passion of mine. So I think that all of this came together with the camera since I had one feeling about an alternate or parallel reality. I had this this development, this love about human behavior. Um, all of this, you know, I'm a part of it. So it's a part of understanding myself too, uh, because we're all duplicates of each other. We're all replicas. Uh, and it's just our experiences that uh, can have different effects on us, but we're still all the same. So it was that. My grandfather, who felt that this was definitely a sign from the Spirit that I had been chosen to. So I began preaching at nine. I have my minister's license, uh, I, and my grandfather did not show up for my trial sermon, which I thought was kind of odd. In fact, my grandfather never, never came to any of my sermons, 
which I thought, you know, in a way it was odd, but it didn't bother me. Um, and later in life, I, w- I found a way to, to see if what was saying why, because we never talked about it. Uh, but I guess he felt, you know, if this was really something that really happened to the way that he think it happened, then there was no reason for him to be there to give me support. I had support. I had the support of the spirit. I knew he loved me, so that was not an issue. Um, so I continued that uh, until I went to college. And then at college, I, I, did, I, I made a, a turn. When I went to college, I told no one that I was a minister. Because by being a minister, people treat you differently. Adults treat you as an adult. Your peers treat you as an adult. So I, it took me years later in therapy to realize that what I was responding, like, reacting against is that I had no teenagehood. I didn't do the late night, you know, drinking or cursing or partying that people my age did because I was focused on something else. And in college, I stepped, made a concerted effort to step away from that so that my peers would treat me the way they would normally treat any other peer. And that was good. Uh, and I never told anybody that until I was doing this book, my memoir, and I was told my editor, and she said, oh, we have to have that. We have to have that story. And I said, hmm, really? <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. And then, to my surprise, <laughs> I thought that story would be buried somewhere in the book, and it turns out it's the opening chapter. So, okay. You know, it's a revisiting a part of my life that I really thought that I had walked away from. But I made note when I worked on a book called The African Family. Uh, I call it The uh, the fam- African Family the World. I call it Feeling the Spirit. That I had to admit, or maybe it was in my memoir, I had to admit that even though I had turned away from the Spirit, I thought, the Spirit never turned away from me. And that my work was still spiritual work. It was at a level, but it was a different kind of thing. And in fact, I was in Haiti once, because I had, I, once in Ghana, <clears throat> I had a, 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 which was hocus pocus for Christians to go into African religion, to be open to African religion. But in Ghana, an African priest did a reading on me. I said, okay, I like it, that's okay. And then I had one in uh, Brazil, and then I got to Haiti, and we have, a, and for some reason, the people with me they wanted to do a reading. I did a we started a reading, and then the uh, and the guy speaking Creole, and he says to me, he said, "Well, the spirit says you have something to do," and I got very pissed off, and uh, I started yelling at the priest, and a, it was something strange happened. The sky became thunderous. A clear sky all of a sudden became lightning and thunderous. So the priest is looking at me in this fit of rage. My interpreter is looking at me. My assistant's looking at me. And I say, and they, they, the guy keeps looking for an answer. And I said, look, you know, I don't want to be a minister. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to be responsible for people. Because I know how fickle people, I've learned how fickle people can be. But I don't want that. That's too much, that's too much baggage to carry. So the guy looks at me, he said, well, you know, 
The Spirit says you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a religious leader in the way that you think that religious leaders are. But in your work, you are already doing that. You So you figure out what it is, how it fits for you, what is comfortable for you, and just keep going. So then I realized, okay, that I could deal with because it, it didn't mean I had to have encumbrances. I'm, I'm, I'm doing... The Spirit must have recognized that I'm trying to do something that other people can't see and can't do. Not because they can't, but because they're not socialized to. Um, and that maybe my work will help people do that. When they see that there's like the same thing in why I was at the New York Times. White people have been socialized to see black people in such a way that our dignity and our personhood was sacrificed on the altars of our condition, of our poverty, of our lack of opportunities, all of that. So what I tried to do is introduce, I couldn't change that scenario that people have been exposed to, but I could put something different in front of them to add something to the visual diet, to get those decision makers to see that there was something else. So, and I, that's what I try to do in all my work, to get everybody to see that there is something else that we weren't aware of that implies that there's another way of looking at this. And that's okay. Mm. Mm. You know, that brings up so, so, so many incredible things, you know, and I want to double tap on um, your time at the times, um, you know, starting in 1975. But, you know, really this this introduction to photography, you know, at Tuskegee. So I actually recently went to Tuskegee this past year for the oh, first nice. time. Oh, nice. Oh, Incredible nice. campus. Just absolutely yep. stunning. The, the, the team yep. here at the, at the IBI, we went down to Montgomery, Alabama. And while everybody else went to brunch... I took a road trip to Tuskegee by myself to walk the campus empty in the summer. Um, But for you, I mean, what, what an incredible space, what an incredible place to be in. Um, But for you, you know, being there, you know, post ministry or ministry hiatus, so to speak, um, you also (laughs) encountered, you know, a gentleman, P.H. Polk. Um, And actually, I'm going to put a quick bookmark in there because there was something I wanted to say about this experience that you had at nine and then this kind of like pushing into like the faith afterwards, right? And it makes me think about not only my own upbringing, but also like, you know, so many of our cultural figures like James Baldwin, right? Like James Baldwin also started out, you know, as a youth minister, right? And, and, I think in my adult life, so my father is a minister, my grandfather was a minister, so I come from a a very long line of pastors and ministers, and even at my young age, I also felt this pressure, right? There was this pressure. Even my grandmother, I'll go home now, and she'll be like, I'm just waiting for you to answer the call. I'm just waiting for you to answer the call. No, no, no pressure, no pressure. But I'm waiting for you to answer the call. <laughs> Zero. She's like, I may not live to see it, but I do. Oh no! Oh no! And, and, <laughs> 
But I know, like, I know that, or I've come to learn, like yourself, that that there are many manifestations of what that looks like, right? And, you know, when we grow up in these places and traditions, um, you know, and through the lens of like a Western European, you know, colonial vocabulary and language structure, uh, you know, we don't have the buckets to place it, right? And so it's like spirit comes, we recognize spirit, so it must be ministry, right? It must be the church. And, you know, I told my grandmother, I was like, you know what, Graham? Not all lawyers are in the courtroom, right? So there's multiple ways to do this. And I think that, you know, in listening to your story, even mine, right? I think in many ways, what I do recognize is that there is actually a sweep of ministry that's happening, you know, in so many areas that are not traditional, right? Like through, well, I'm, I don't need to list them. But anyway, I just wanted to double tap on that because I think, you know, we as a people sometimes don't have the expansive vocabulary um, to place the spectrum of you know, where spirit lies and what the, and what that means and how does one inhabit it, right? Like we don't have the spectrum of identities um, or even history, which I think a lot of your work really penetrates. And we'll talk a bit more about that, like in the sacred Nile and how, you know, African religions really map onto the religions that we find ourselves today. But let me get back on track. Tuskegee, P.H. Polk, you encounter both photography for the first time and a camera. What was that experience like moving from you know your prior degree into now seeing this avenue of expression well you know it was it came to me as a surprise because at Tuskegee I majored in business management and my, I, we, uh, this, the newspaper was called Campus Digest. And the university gave us a budget that we could publish eight pages each issue. Then we had an editor who came on board who was quite ambitious and felt that, hey, we had a lot more stories. We needed more pages. But how could we pay for it since we didn't have the money? <clears throat> so he said, okay, look, this is a problem you have to solve. We need this much more money. How can we do it? So I said, okay, we run ads, local business ads, and the local business ads are the size of a business card. And we run national ads the size of half pages, full pages. They have photographs. So I thought, what if I can convince the local businesses to have a photograph in their ads? of themselves or their business, which means it would cost them more money. So I went out and I convinced all these business people that this was a great idea for them to do. <clears throat> they loved it. I sold enough money to make it to add to our budget so that we could afford to print those extra four pages. So we laid out the ads. The editor was ready to go to the uh, printer uh, and we didn't have the pictures. I'd hired Mr. Polk, who I knew worked for the Student Digest and the annual port report, uh, the Tuskegee uh, <clears throat> annual, and the administration. I hired him to go make these pictures. I was called them up and say, we need the pictures, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so 
the day that we have to go to the press, to the printer, the pictures are not there. So the editor left with his staff to go to the printer, and I went to Mr. Polk's house. I drove to Mr. Polk's house and said, Mr. Polk, this is the predicament that we're in. We need to have those pictures right now. I need to take them to the printer. He says, okay. He said, well, I made, I shot the negatives, but I didn't process it or make prints. I said, okay, well, what does that mean? How do we get to, he said, okay, come with me. I went upstairs to the second floor to, into a room with a red light on. He says, okay, here's the film. I'm going to do this to process it. He processed it. He then pulled out the string of 36 explosions. says, okay, uh, I think I'll pick this, this, and this. I said, great. I'll go downstairs and wait. He said, I'll call you when the print's coming up. So he called me back up. And I come and I to a room where water is running. And he has these pieces of paper and chemicals. And these papers are transforming into images. And I look at the images and I said, great, wow. You know, we have what we need. Uh, I need to take them. He said, okay, I have to dry them. So then he put them on a dryer and I waited for that. But then I came back upstairs and I threw this little back door he had to go up to a studio. And I noticed that there, to get to the door that goes to his dark room, there was black studio cloth lining the walls. The cloth that was in front of the door, you had to move back. And when it moved, when I pulled it back, I saw for the first time these photographs of farmers from Depression era, poor people, but it caught all of their dignity as a person. They were not, uh, their, their, their condition did not eliminate their sense of personhood the sense of self, the sense of dignity. So when I got the, when I took the press of Mr. Polk, I said, okay, Mr. Polk, I have to go deliver these, but I want to come back and ask you about these pictures. He was okay. So I <clears throat> discharged my responsibility and I came back. And I said, well, tell me about these pictures. He said, well, these pictures are made during the Depression. He says, I live on Washington Avenue, which is one of the streets that the farmers use on the weekend on Saturdays to go to the market. And he says, I'm sitting on my porch just watching and every now and then I'll see what I call a good character. And I'll run out after them and I will offer them money to let me come back into my studio and make that picture. I said, oh, that's interesting. He said, well, I have to offer them money because they think I'm a fool. Why would you <laughs> look at why you want to make a picture of me? <laughs> But he says, when I offer them money, they make the calculation. Okay, they're going to the market. They already got so many dimes in their pocket, but now I'm going to give them more money. So they got more money to spend in the market. So then that overcomes that. And then they come back in my studio and I take maybe 10 minutes and 15 minutes and I make their picture. And these are the pictures that I made. And I said, well, I love these pictures. I said, in fact, these pictures remind me of my relatives and other people in my hometown. But I know what it costs to hire you to make pictures, and I can imagine if you have more cost to go 100 miles south to my little farming town to make pictures, so would you teach me how to make pictures? So he says, well, I said, well, can I use your camera to, you know, maybe one hour uh, when you were sleeping on Saturdays to make pictures? So he looks at me, he says... He think he, you know, how old people sort of measure you up. He look at me. He says, you know, finally, he says, you know what? 
if you are fool enough to ask me that, to let you use the only camera that I use to make a living with, I'm going to be fool enough to help you. So, <laughs> he fixed the camera. I go out around his house, make a few pictures, come back at the end of the row. I don't touch it because I don't know what it's about. I take it back to him. And this is before light meters. So he processed the film and I think maybe two or three of them came out and he was livid. <laughs> so I realized he didn't want me using this camera. So I didn't ask him to use this camera again. But what I did do is I bugged him like hell. I would go to his house as often as I could because he had hundreds of photographs lying around. And I would ask him questions about each of those photographs. What was the situation? How did this happen? What did you do? What did you shoot it at? Trying to get a sense of the skills I didn't know also technically because he can walk into a room and he says, okay, I'm shooting tracks. This is uh, F6 uh, at 125th. That was a skill that he had developed that I had yet to learn. So I'm still learning from him. He demystified the process of photography, demystified the process of working with people. You know, you one thing that another mentor taught me, if you want to work with people, you have to love them and let them know that you love them and have no judgment. You have to let them know exactly what it is that's about them that you're attracted to. No ambiguity. And let them know they can, and they feel it. Because, you know, people, that your gut is the smartest thing on you. And your gut would tell whether or not this is something that you trust. And then you start trying, the other part is how you make the technical stuff work. So about a year later, I saved enough, I had money on me, and I was in Manhattan, Kansas for student government meeting. And I looked into this Photoshop and there was a camera for $100. But what was unique about this camera, it was the beginning of cameras with light, having light meters in it. It had a light meter. Rudimentary, but it worked. I bought it. I started shooting. And when I got back to Tuskegee, I didn't, I tried processing, but I, I destroyed the whole thing. I was no good at it. I followed instructions, but just didn't go. Uh, I'm not. I'm not good at de some details. So I asked Mr. Polk if I could hire him to process and contact sheet my prints, and that's what I did. And then I started um, being the business person. I started. I realized who had money on campus it was not the students. It was the, the administration and the and the professors. So I started making casual pictures of them as they went about their way. And then I would go back after Mr. Polk processed and made contact sheets, I would go back to somebody and say, oh, look at this picture I made of you. Oh, wow, can I get that picture? Oh yeah, it cost you $10. Oh, okay, <laughs> eight, five, 10. So gradually, gradually I made enough money then that I could buy a better camera the next year because I learned the difference between a screw mount and a bayonet. But that's, but then with the better camera, I was ready to go home and make the pictures. So it took me a year and a half, almost a year and three quarters from the time I saw those pictures at Mr. Polk until I was proficient enough to go home and ask my relatives to let me make their pictures. So one of my relatives worked on a railroad all his life, got his retirement clock and everything. And I'm on his porch making his pictures, my Uncle John. And he says to me, he said, well, son, 
That's a beautiful camera you got there. How much does that camera cost? And very proudly, I said, $250, Uncle John. He says, $250? A camera costs that much to make his own pictures. <laughs> I just... <laughs> but, you know, the... As that was from his point of view, he was absolutely correct. <laughs> so it, it 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 had a it had a for me it had the 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 uh, light meter, so that helped make it work. But what I wanted to do, why I wanted to make my relatives' photographs, is this: my father's relatives were farmers or worked on the railroads or women who can or made uh, quilts raised children, but on their walls, they only had two things. They had the farmer's almanac, which was important for a farming community when the plant your seeds and expect the rains to come, and a picture of Jesus Christ. There were no pictures of themselves because to make pictures cost a lot of money. My mother being a school teacher, each year the school had pictures, but for everybody else, it cost money, more money than they had. So I wanted to make a picture of all of my relatives, and I wanted to frame it, and I wanted to hang it on their walls, and I wanted to see their eyes. I wanted to see their chest puff out when they realized that they were worthy enough to hang on their walls. That's why I picked up the camera. Mm. Mm. And how did that that intention translate to your time at the New York Times once you got to the New York Times well, in 1975? Well, I got to the New York Times after I was hired by Look Magazine and went out of business. And I found this mentor in 1970, summer of 1969, rather. I came to New York because I learned everything Mr. Polk had taught me, but I knew that I was not competitive enough. People in Tuskegee can agree with my photographs, but how can I make my photographs help change the national opinion? I had a choice. I could take a poster and I could stand outside the local two local newspapers and say, this paper is racist because the pictures they publish, or I could find a way to publish the pictures that they could not see and have them come at them from the national stage. When I sat down to talk to this man at, at Look Magazine, he says, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to change the image of my people in the media because the media denig denigrates us and does not see us as human beings. He said, well, that's a pretty tall order. I said, that may be, but that's the only one I have. So, there began a process of teaching me um, and teaching me how to be so skillful that my imagery became competitive so that the national press found them attractive. And I'm still carrying the same message, the love for my people that you can't see. And I don't expect you to see. They're not your people. They're my people. I'm here. That's my responsibility. So at the times, my responsibility is to do the work that I'm professionally trained to do, but also to do the, the loving work on people who look like me, mm. 
so that when pictures get in the paper that I've produced, it has is you you it I'm broadening the runway. I'm broadening the landscape that you think that you've been socialized to think about people of color, and I'm doing it in a loving way. So it's the first time that a white person who's been socialized. Un- whether he considers himself liberal, racist, or whatever, sees a picture of a black person in a loving way. And it's coming to him on a platform where decision makers look at. So it's to me, it's all, it's all the spirit. I'm just following what the spirit tells me. I, the spirit tells me to be honest. I, that's why I tell the guy, look, this is what I want to do. This is what's needed. And, um, whether it's impossible or not, this is what I'm going to do. So, you know, there's also a saying as a youngster that I came across in business school was that the world will step aside and let a man pass who knows where he's going. Mm. Amen to that. (laughs) You know, as we talk about this time at the New York Times, um, you know, I mean, and you had this singular mission, you know, that carried you through all the way up into your retirement from the paper in 2014. You know, were, were there any, like, challenges or what challenges existed with this singular kind of focus or did everyone just step out of the way because you knew where you were there going? There were challenges. There, there were challenges, but, you know, you, it, allies are very important. So I always try to appeal to the, to the smartest people who were in power. So that whenever I, and, you know, <clears throat> now, I think just think, I think it's a good habit. And uh, you never know when it comes in handy. Um, but I, I know, and there's been several times when it came in handy. And uh, uh, my book, Feeling the Spirit, turned out to be a, a major piece in the Sunday magazine. Um, but, you know, there was a time when, uh, I don't know if you remember Andrew Young, when he was he was an ambassador to the United Nations. He was uh, the mayor of uh, Atlanta, minister, uh, uh, I think he's one of the uh, Martin Luther King's lieutenants. But during the time of Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter appointed him to the United Nations as the United Nations ambassador for for the United States. And Andrew Young, being a minister, uh, saw the discord between the Palestinians and the Jewish communities. uh, And he I guess maybe thought that like Ralph Bunch, he can make a difference. And the official, the Israelis had gotten the Americans uh, to declare uh, that they uh, should not talk to the Palestinians without their approval. And Andrew Young violated that. <clears throat> he had a meeting with the Palestinians. I'm not sure where it was, but a big uproar. And the political consequence was that he lost his job. President Carter had to relieve him. So the night of that story, 
uh, when Andy Young went from New York to Washington to be dismissed. There are many pictures of it uh, in the White House, but we had this editor's picture editor, <clears throat> very racist guy from Connecticut. I think of him as a Hopalong Cassidy kind of person, uh, you know, cowboy. And um, I was working at nights, uh, the four to 12 shifts, so I could see what was going to make the eight o'clock and the 10 o'clock deadline papers. And I went out, something said go out, take a look, and I'll go and I'm, I'm aghast. I see this picture of Andrew Young in the back of a car at nighttime leaving a White House, shot with a flash that makes him look like a, a thief in the night. So I asked this editor, I says, are you running this picture? He said, yes. I said, are there any other pictures? He said, yes. I, I looked at him. He didn't show them to me. I looked at him and he says, uh, well, that's the picture. Now, the managing editor was a guy who was very hard to deal with, but he's very smart. <clears throat> I go over, to, I take all the pictures. I go over to his office and I says, excuse me, but we don't treat, this is the picture that the editor is determined to use. This picture is the meaning and we don't treat any ambassadors, especially our ambassadors like this. He looks at it, he hears me. He says, okay, let's go over and see what else he has. So we walked over. He looked at the other pictures. He took that picture down. He told this kid from Kentucky, uh, from Connecticut, use this one. So what I did protected his honor, protected his personhood, protected our sense of ownership of Andrew Young. And I think that's the value of being inside as opposed to being outside tomorrow with a picket sign to be inside today and see things and speak on it and stop them if need be. Mm. 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 Like so, so, so prescient, <coughs> so um, timely, um, given the, the state of the world that we find ourselves in now um, with the resurgence of uh, violence in the Middle East. Um, but let's actually pivot to a place a little bit further south, Africa. So you have traveled to Africa, like, please correct me if I'm wrong, but like every year for the past 50 years, am I correct? Since 71, since 71. 71, okay, maybe... I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to try my math right now. That, that's, sure. that's, that's, um, that's fifty-four. But, <laughs> fifty-four. <laughs> okay, perfect. Thanks, bro. thank you. I was like, you know what? Let me let me stay on track. Um, I embarrass myself. But you know, I I think you're. You know, if I'm not. Uh, if I'm correct, you were on your way there for an assignment um, to to photograph for for a, for an agency. I think like a travel agency or, or something like this or a corporation. But when you yeah, landed, you encountered something very different than what you were well, expecting. Um, well, in '71, you know, my first trip there, it, it was. It was a little frightening, not the place, 
but the act of giving myself the freedom to go. Because we live in a society where the media is controlled by people who hate us, despise us. So therefore, the image out of Africa, if it wasn't Tarzan and Jane, it was always how horrible this place, the condition of this place. And then I remember I was looking around before I went and I saw, I ran into missionaries who had been to Africa. And I was a taken aback because they kept saying to me, well, you wouldn't like it there and you 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 wouldn't get along with they wouldn't you and these people would not get along. And I thought, hmm, I tell you, white people are really making me scared of myself. But I also realize because I'm a scholar and I read of studies that written by Africans because I made African friends at Tuskegee, that I realize how wrong or how inadequate white scholarship is about people of color, that it gave me the courage to ignore them. So I'm going to go. I'm going to step out on faith. I'm going to go and see for myself. And I get there, and the smell of the air, the smell of the red soil just made me feel, and the warmth of the people just made me realize I have stepped into another reality. And that reality was was loving. That reality, and I spent a couple of days before I realized that what is different here? What's different is that racism has dropped off of my shoulder. I'm not in the minority. I'm in the majority. Somebody may not like me because I do something rude, but my color is not a target. major, major understanding. And that's what said, okay, I may be here now the first time for a week or two, but I'm coming back. I'm coming back to discover all of my cousins, but also prismatically, I'm coming back to discover all the different parts of myself that have been reduced and demonized in America that I had no idea existed. Mm. Mm. And, you know, your most recent book, um, Sacred Nile, which, thank you again, you gifted... You gifted to me, sight unseen, brother. I shook your hand. I said, I loved your work. And you were like, I have something for you. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for that gift. I had, I had no, um, I had no idea what you did. The gift continues to unfold. <clears throat> Not a thing. Just nothing. Um, and here we are. And you're still giving. Um, but I want to read a little bit from it before we delve into um, this section on Africa, because I feel like it's it's so rich, um, but requires a, a bit of framing just for people listening. I mean, obviously, you know what I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> for anybody who would like to purchase uh, A Sacred Nile, it is available wherever books are sold. Uh, you could find it uh, anywhere on Amazon, but once you find it, Amazon, it's, it's yes. on page 15. <laughs> So, Sacred Nile is my portrait of the spiritual imagination and the genesis of faith in Africa. Ancient records left in stone detail Africans' philosophical quest 
to wrestle with the seminal issues of who we are, where we are, and what is our purpose. In my photographs, I celebrate the sacred agency of people of African descent and their foundational influence on all Western religions. And I'll stop there. What I found so fascinating about this book and obviously the fruits of your, you know, decades of travel, you know, to the continent one, actually, it's the reason we're even having this conversation, because I knew you and I know you through your photographic work, but our conversation was about African spirituality. And I'm always interested in the philosophical underpinnings of artistic artifacts. You know, in many ways, we always we see the painting, we see the photograph, we see the sculpture. But what is that work, right? Like these are just artifacts, right? Like these, this is almost like the residue of other work. And so, this idea of one, you know, Africa, but then two, African spirituality and your quest. You know, I mean, this book, I mean, has hieroglyphs, has the deities' names in it, right? Like this is just not a photo book. This is. This is, well, one, a future archival, you know, resource, but it is also like a tome, right? Like this is an educational tool. So what what inspired you to create this book? And could you unpack a bit about your understanding or what you've come to understand around African spirituality and its relationship to the great three that we practice today? African people were the first people to establish a relationship with this spirit world. We were, and and to name it, and in fact, as a surprise to many of you, I've discovered that the the biblical story of Egypt and the real story of Egypt is quite different. The Egyptians were not the evil people that the Bible portrays them. The Bible is not their story. It's the story of their enemies. And their enemies decided to portray them this way. The Egyptians, however, portrayed themselves completely. And you can see the remnants, the ruins, you say, the skeletons on the walls of their temples and the walls of their tombs that they were a very religious people. (coughs) Excuse me, a very spiritual people. Bless you. And spirituality, their understanding of spirituality is that nature is God. And everything in nature is a part of God. And they had a name for God. They only believed in one God. And that's one God who's invisible and everywhere. We say his name all the time without knowing that it's a black person's name. And the name is the letters A-M-E-N. That's the name of the top God of the Egyptian of African people. Written in stone. The glyphs are there. <laughs> 
And when the Greek who came and defeated the Egyptians because they were peaceful people and occupied them for 250 years, as the Romans were driving them out, as they had despised the Egyptian religion, then decided to write what they call the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in order to do that, they had to plagiarize the very people that they hated. And that plagiarization was then taken over by uh, as a way of pacification for African people to enslave them. In the Bible that you have, there are 54 references to telling slaves that they should obey their masters. That is not part of the Egyptian religion. But we are very religious people because there are other things about nature that's interwoven in there that we realize, oh, we can relate to this. So we worship the Bible without knowing it unconsciously in a cherry-picked manner and without knowing that we are the authors of the original material before it was corrupted. That explains to me why, as growing up, when I went to white churches after college and black churches, and I said, well, you know, black people have such an intense emotional relationship with the spirit, and white people sit there like it's dead. I mean, you go to a Catholic church and the, and the, and the minister has to read the Bible. That would never happen in a black church or people who, for, for a lot of different reasons. And it's basically because it's our scripture. The scripture that is not against us comes from our people. The Ten Commandments come from our people. It's written on the tomb walls. The Egyptians called it the 42 of uh, uh, negative confessions or declaration of innocence. I have not killed. I have not committed adultery. I have not stolen. I have not used the word of the God in vain. All of these things we invented first. The evidence is still there. And I'll, I say the spirit has a very interesting way of working because the spirit had to have known in the future that we would forget this. That's why it's written in stone. It probably was written in, you know, papyrus and stuff too, but that was destroyed. But luckily, luckily, there are places in stone where it has preserved. And only because it was written in stone uh, tombs underneath pyramids. So it took us time to get to find this material. It took us time to, cause, to relearn how, what the, how to interpret and read this material so the voices to come back. So, and then I say, you know, you talk about the, the, the inspiration. Our people, the African people who we call ancient Egyptians, were inspired so much by nature and the heavens that they figured out the calendar. The calendar hasn't changed from the 365 days that our people gave it to us. They figured out that the earth the equinox changes seasons. They figured out how to measure time in a day. All these other conquering countries that have come to Africa and have come to Egypt, they have not been, a, they, they still rely on that information. They figured out astronomy. They figured out algebra, trigonometry, calculus, all of this. They couldn't build a pyramid so perfectly without it. They even built a pyramid finding north, not by magnetic north, but by the stars. 
They got the information from the stars. So they were the most spiritual people. They had the first universities. They had the first empires. That's us. So Egyptology, when you hear of Egyptology, that was a science created by the British to rob the African man of his memory. Because the British realized that, look, we have these Africans and we're enslaving them. Now, we can't, we can't let them know that they were even better than us. So we have to separate Egypt off. It has to become a part of another thing, not Africa. We'll make it called the Middle East. And, we and we'll make it something that they don't understand. So we'll write books. And we wrote a book, and it's a misnomer, but they use linguistics to hide it from you in a book called The Book of the Dead. Who wants to read a book of the dead? But all of that information is there. It's hidden in plain sight. We just haven't shifted, made a pivot to see it and to embrace it. So what I wanted to do with Sacred Now is go back to the beginning of African history to show that our imagination is the imagination of our ancestors that we still live on today. That the Bible as we know it, the Patriarch Bible, as corrupt as it is, could not exist without standing on the shoulders of our imagination about spirituality. And in spite of the fact that they want to corrupt it, they had to leave enough in it, or else it would have no glue to it. You know, it's like music. You, had to, you have to have the bass line in order to carry the top. So I just wanted, it's been, when I began to realize this, I says, look, I have to find a way to communicate to my people this sacred heritage that we have, this sacred heritage that will always be and speak to our own sacredness. So then my problem was, okay, how do I introduce stuff uh, to people? I, there's been a lot of, I'm not the first person to understand this. A lot of people wrote about it, but visual evidence is quite different. How do I give people the visual evidence so that it's, I'm not asking you to believe anything. I'm asking you just to tell me what you see and you can show other people what you see. And I'm taking you to the places where if you go there, you go here. I'm telling you where to go. You go there. This means this. That's what that fits into. And then the other problem I had is that, you know, we, because we have been obsessed with the Master's Bible, which has made us very delusional. I mean, how can you expect the Master, Savior, who saves him, to listen to you that the Master abuses? And expect to find justice. And no, no, that, that's just, that's, that's delusional. It doesn't happen. But I know there's a tradition. We have this because the church fundamentally, the role of the ministry is to serve the people and they use the spirit to maintain the happiness of the soul. So not to get into conflict with where we think we're going because, you know, religion Has a you know can do many good things and can do horrible things, but religion fundamentally is what I call death insurance. And what I mean by that, it means that you know you're going to die, and you hope that there will be a time afterwards that you will continue, and you've been convinced that if you do this twenty times a week or that twenty times a month, 
that when the time you need to make that crossover, you have paid enough into your insurance policy that is going to happen. Of course, there's no evidence that that policy has worked for anybody else, but this is what you're convinced of. So people of Theo, we are convinced we need this death insurance. Well, the Egyptians didn't feel that way about death. They saw it as one other stage of movement because you can't get out of here. Everything is recycling. But because we're in that particular feeling, I don't want to, I have to try to reach people and I'm not going to condemn what they do. But what I want them to see is that what they do comes out of a legacy, comes out of a history. And if you could do that, then you could find the authority within yourself to step off of the, the enslavement Bible and reclaim the, the nature, the Bible of nature. You don't need somebody you don't need to give your 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 power to some person uh, to communicate with the creator the creator is communicating with you every moment the creator communicates with you when you breathe when you open your eyes in the morning you're already blessed twice because you both two eyes open when you stand on firm ground you're communing with the creator so if if somehow there's a way that people can gain, regain the confidence that they are enough and to accept this, this, this covenant that's already there between you and nature and you and God, um, I think that would be fantastic. Mm. Brother, I'm like sitting here I look over at one of these images in the book, like I'm about to like burst into tears. You know, this is like such an incredible, incredible conversation. Um, you know, and it's interesting, you know, as, as I listen to you, you know, I can hear, you know, I grew up in the church, right? So I can hear my father, you know, covering his ears or, you know, like, oh, that's some some, some conspiracy theory stuff, right? Um, but I but I think what's really great about this book and what you really lay out is, is really just the history, right? Like, it's just information. At the end of the day, it's information. You figure out what you want to do with it, right? But when you see and understand that, you know, you know, these, these, Civilization started, you know, 5,000 BCE, right? You know, and then after a few thousand years, you had the Greeks come in and occupy them for 300 years. And many of these Egyptian deities are actually what we, what you know, what we were taught in, in school as like these Greek gods and goddesses, right? You know, Aphrodite and Hades and Zeus, right? There is an Egyptian equivalent to all of it. And I think this idea of, I love that you like spirit needed to know that we would forget this in the future. That's why it was written in stone. That this was actually discovered, as you say in the book, by Napoleon, right? So, you know, this ancient civilization that had been lost was actually rediscovered by Napoleon. Um, and then that began many of the excavations, that began many of the uncover, you know, a lot of the uncovering of this knowledge. And when you look at it in the arc of history, you can see right this kind of like dark hidden period where there was this long long arc of misinformation right because there was this disconnection from a source right so you had what a millennia or more right of disconnection 
right? And interpretation, we've all played the game of telephone. Um, and so you, you know, combine telephone with colonization and you can imagine what you'll end up with 1500 years later, only to then those very same conquerors to then rediscover right, what was written in stone, the thing that would actually last. Um, and so I just find this quite fascinating um, and absolutely incredible. Um, and thinking about just photography in general, I mean, you've had an incredible, incredible, incredible career. What has been your relationship to technology? You know, I think the artist is always really in conversation with technology and photography is, you know, not immune. I think the most incredible change, right, is the pivot to digital photography. But what has been your relationship to photography, especially knowing and, you know, seeing the work that you did on film um, was my first introduction to your work. And then I'm assuming maybe parts of, you know, A Sacred Nile is digital, perhaps, I'm not sure. But like, what has been, what has been that relationship with you? Or for you? Well, in the beginning, I think, you know, uh, as a photographer, uh, we're purists. And uh, I've always loved black and white photography. And gradually, I began to embrace color, uh, only because I think that color um, can be distractive uh, from from the real image. Uh, and then I've embraced uh, Photoshop. Uh, and... Uh, there was a time when I used to, in one of my trips to to Ethiopia and Egypt, I always, every year I go, I always take two suitcases uh, full of uh, blocks of film. And one year I came through and I could not convince the Egyptians not to x-ray my film. And when I got the film process, I had spots all over it. So I said, okay, I have faith in the future. There will become some technology that will be able to clean these up, and sure it has. And now my interest, since as I study more of the of Egyptology and go and visit tombs and uh and, and watch and look at statuary all over the world, I realized that there was a lot of cleaning that went on that the British and the French did. Uh this and they uh, tried to erase uh the black color from a lot of the uh, 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 figurings. And you can see that when you see partial stuff, when you may be able to erase the cheeks, but you couldn't get on the eyes. Uh, uh, and so that some of the image comes off reddish uh, and some uh, and some comes off, uh, you see the black over the, <clears throat> over the red, which could mean that, you know, someone didn't, uh, didn't have the time to complete the job. But... Now that AI is here, my dream is now to find a way to work with AI to use my photographs and reestablish the color to the figurines where it's been wiped off. Put the black back on Ramses everywhere. Put the black back on Queen uh, Nefertiti, uh, or the the rich, you know, uh, chocolate, but to uh, reverse the degradation of so, the so-called restorers in the name of a white uh, of, a, of a white narrative. Uh, so, <clears throat> technology is um, is good that it's here. I think that technology could be great for even 
at some point produced do, doing a film on ancient Egypt where you actually uh, follow the, there's so many so many great films that can come out of ancient Egypt uh, and there's a, a huge cost but now uh, AI may even make that easy to do but my concern right now is just trying to find a way to to uh, reclaim the color of the of the imagery now you know in one way I feel like I'm out here all alone because uh, I mean, I'm out here far ahead of my of my people. I don't think they are where I'm at. So, uh, obviously, there are, I'm glad to know that there are a, a bunch of them who who are sensitive to what I'm doing and and can uh, and who appreciate it. Um, but I think is um, uh, I, I like I like for that obviously I like for that number to grow, and I hope I live long enough to see it. Mm. You know, as we as we wind down, um, you know, I meet so many incredible photographers. And actually, the night that I met you um, was celebrating our good friend Deb Willis, who I just call the mother of us all. She is an incredible <laughs> <Yes>. figure, um, <laughs> Mama Deb. <laughs> you know, a, a towering figure. Yeah, Mama Deb. Um, and I met so many incredible, incredible, like young, you know. Uh, photographers of color, you know, in their freshman and sophomore years at NYU. Um, and, you know, many of them actually listen to this podcast, Chester. There's like a whole creative class of young folk um, who tap in. And so for those listening, like, what is, what are some just key, key nuggets you can share with them as they begin their journey into image making? And then, you know, all those who are just curious, right? I'm sure there's a dad somewhere with an expensive camera who has no idea what the hell he's doing. Or mom. <laughs> but go for it. Well, first of all, I want to say, I'm, I'm so proud, I'm so happy that there are young visual makers, <clears throat> image makers on the scene. Because we have a vast community. We have thousands and hundreds of thousands, mm -hmm. if not millions of stories that should be told millions of images that should be appreciated. And there's no way that any one of us can do all that work by ourselves. We have to have a front line of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of image makers, each going after what they know best. Because it all feeds into a larger stream. It's, I see them as uh, con uh, tri contributing tributaries into the river of sight, the river of appreciation. Our people need it, our people deserve it, our people are worthy. And I'm so proud that these young people are stepping up to the plate. And uh, if there's anything I can do to encourage them, um, just let me know. Because we feel of the visual image is very powerful. Because the eye, the eye, even though we have five senses, the eye is the only one that has all of them. And this is what I mean. We can breathe, we can taste, we can see, we can feel, but the eye does them all. As my mentor, Romy Bearden, taught me one day, he says, look out the window. He says, you know, if you see um, somebody shoot somebody, your eye will cause your whole body to recall even if you didn't hear it. You see an ad, and the ad has a, a stake the sizzling, you would taste it. You would hear the sizzle, and you weren't even there. 
all because of the eye has all of these senses. So the eye, I think of all the senses, I've been taught to believe that the eye is the most important sense. It's an organ, it's a muscle. Exercise that muscle every time you turn around. Find a picture, crop that picture, make that picture. I say make because I don't take pictures, I make pictures, and that's what I want every young photographer to do. Make, find, seek out those pictures that need to be made, that reflect your engagement, that reflect your testimony, that becomes your journal about your time here with the rest of us. So that when we pass, I had a great uncle once who told me once, uh, that whatever decision I made about which direction I want to go in life, he says it's important that you make a statement on life or you could very well die undeclared. Which at a young age was quite good for me because I was 19 and full of ego. It helped me get rid of a lot of ego. To know that I could go through and all these things happen and I could die and it didn't have to matter. So the key is do your work. Do the work that you feel is God is matters for you and for everyone else. Amen. Oh, no pun intended. Um, I know we spoke. <laughs> I know we spoke about A M E N. Um, <laughs> I'm so messy, Chester. Please. Um, okay. Sorry. So before I ask, <laughs> before I ask the last question, um, man, I don't even know where to begin in acknowledging and thanking you for your one, your tireless work in not only becoming, but, you know, you speak about, you know, these tributaries flowing into, you know, a larger stream of, of visual knowledge and reference. But, you know, I think about you kind of through the lens of AI, right? The ways in which your images have actually repopulated the data set of Black life of America for, for generations, like actually generations with an S. And not only that, like, not just repopulated the data set, but like, brother... Your technical skills wear me out. I told you that, you know, that image of Muslim woman, you know, from 1990 in Brooklyn lives rent-free in my head. You know, every time I look at your images, I'm looking at the whites. I'm looking at the gradations. I'm looking at the shadows. Like, And I'm just like, if you want to study technical perfection... Chester Higgins is the one. Um, and so that dedication to your own work and your own craft, but then also really... I think what's been really beautiful about this conversation, even during the research, was this this superhero origin story at nine, right? This type of wisdom, this type of gift that you've walked with your entire life and, you know, use the medium of photography and also writing, right? And traveling and being in conversation with people to really express it in a way that perhaps my grandmother wouldn't get, but is no less the real deal Holyfield. So Chester Higgins, brother, I appreciate you so much and acknowledge you. Um, Thank you. So my last question is, oh, of course, of course, of course. Um, My last question is, if you had everything at your behest, what is the world you imagine for the future? You know, 
we as a people um, have created what the Egyptians created. And we became invaded because we were peace-loving people. <clears throat> Love life, peace-loving people. And I just, could you imagine how great the African continent would be if we did not have to deal with, a, had, did not have to deal, dealt with invaders and we were still on our own, making our trajectory. I like to see an Africa that's free because an Africa that is free and also strong, strong because of good management. There's nothing wrong with Africa. Our enemies want us to think there is. There's nothing wrong with Africa except bad management and the criminal assault on the uh, ability by, by whites and their institutions of the IMF, World Bank, criminal assault against the, the people so it limits their ability to provide and industrialize. And this was a, uh, up until the Chinese came on the scene, this was a thing that the Europeans had complete control of and they all wanted to keep us poor. You know, there's a thing, to give a man a fish feeds him for a day. To show him how to build a boat feeds him, his family, forever. But they never wanted to, get, always wanted to see us in a poverty role, selling raw goods at the low, low prices that they would then refine and sell for much higher and fund their societies. But to cripple us, there's always, so we have to, my dream is, and there are smart African people who've been going to schools now. That's why they, you have these coups happening. They're breaking away from the French. Break it first from the, from the English, and then from the Portuguese, and then from the French. These people, I have the faith that they will, they are forced to use their imagination to overcome these shortcomings. But when, and then they're using their imaginations to have a collective currency and a collective government where people are beholden not to the European banks, but to the Bank of Africa. This is, this is my imagination, because Africa uh, will become, uh, with the new people on the scene, the young people, just like you and, and the young photographers, who are the African photographers who are also trying to change the visual image of African people. You're not alone. There's a, there's a whole community. Get the hook, get together with them. In New York City, there's a thing called the African Center up at 110th and 5th Avenue. Get involved with them too. We're all on the same on, on the same boat here. But together, together being politically correct uh, on the, on, uh, in an African, uh, pan-African way, uh, we, will we are the only ones who can deliver ourselves. And I believe that we have the abilities uh, to be great financiers, great entrepreneurs, great scientists, great researchers, great communicators. All of these things uh, are going to be needed. Uh, and they are, these skills are being built now and we need, uh, we say everybody else, you got, you have a, you have a propensity for these skills, learn them and, um, and put them to use. You, and some people may not know that every year thousands of African Americans who reach retirement age resettle into some part of Africa. Ghana is the most favorite part, but they go to other parts as well. Uh, and they go with skills and find a way to make these skills helpful, to be of service. We have to be, take our skills and be of service because um, our um, 
collective worth, our collective ability deserves it. And so it is. And here we are. Brother Higgins, thank you so much for your afternoon. I look forward to seeing you you again very soon. And I cannot wait to share this conversation with our audience and also some of your incredible images as well so they can get a peek into what we've all known for a very long time about those sensory eyes of yours um, that actually reach beyond, <laughs> actually reach beyond the physical beyond, beyond beyond those five senses you're you're reaching somewhere else you're reaching into another plane um, anyway let me stop uh, this has been an absolute pleasure thank you thank you all so much for joining us today uh, Chester is something else Connect with us and share your thoughts over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And be sure to check out this conversation and others over at blackimagination.com. And if you'd like to be on the inside track of what's happening here with us, including our upcoming physical space at the Oculus in New York City, upcoming guests, and more, be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. The link is also down in the show notes. This episode really reveals the power of standing still and resting in awareness. Who knows? You might just catch the spirit. Stay curious and keep dreaming.